Where did the phrase "Don't mess with Texas" originate? Okay, and what is the most filmed movie location in the world? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off ramp. A chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and learn a few things with some fun trivia. Okay, where did the phrase "Don't mess with Texas" originate, Marcia? Don't mess with Texas. Is it from the fight for the Alamo, professional wrestling, an anti-litter campaign,、mm. or a famous political fight? Well, be a fun litter campaign. Well, it was.、Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was an old slogan, but apparently it's pretty recent. Don't mess with Texas. People take people seriously when they say that. But it was coined for a state anti-litter campaign in the 1980s. Anti-litter. Oh, that's a good one. Back then, the state was spending 20 million dollars a year for trash pickup, and the Texas Department of Transportation invested in a marketing campaign to try to reduce the costs. Makes sense. So they hired an Austin advertising agency. And copywriter Tim McClure came up with the slogan "Don't mess with Texas." So it's a call to action for Texans to keep their state litter free. I like it. Aimed at young men, 16 to 24, who were the major contributors to litter. It has double meaning. That appeals to their macho side. Right. So, right? Exactly.、It、sounds like you're picking a fight. Yeah. Don't mess with Texas. Don't litter in Texas. Don't mess up Texas. That's what it means. And it worked, I'll bet. And it worked. A year later, roadside litter had been reduced by nearly thirty percent, and four years later, the litter was down seventy-two percent. That's pretty amazing, right? Exactly. So don't mess with Texas. Yeah, was a good advertising very slogan. Very clever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, Bob. What is the most filmed movie location in the world? So we're talking about a location that's off-site. It's not in the studios. Correct. Okay. So I would say it's probably Monument Valley, Utah, because of those old westerns. Yeah, the John Ford westerns. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed too. But nay. Hmm. Is it a city? Is it like <laughs>、yeah. New York City? It's well, it's an area in New York. An、city. area in New York City. Okay, where would that be? It's、uh, Central Park. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, that is the location of 532 movies. Can, no kidding! Can you believe that? Everything from Ghostbusters, Barefoot in the Park, The Manchurian Candidate, Marathon Man, Wall Street—all have been filmed partially in the park. Central Park, New、yeah. York.、Uh-huh. Wow! So that probably goes back to the silent days. I would assume some、yeah. some films were、yeah. shot for a part of them in Central Park.、Uh-huh. Wow! Well, that makes sense. You know,、mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the movie makers began, and、yeah. he had to find some place that didn't look like it was a city. And、yeah. Central Park definitely does that. So Central Park is the most filmed location in the world. In the world. Okay. Okay. What do you got next? I've got a movie question. The man who wrote the famous James Bond theme died recently. So here's what I learned: the James Bond theme originally had lyrics, words. What was the song about? <laughs> And now, Marcia, here are my clues for you. Oh, you know, thank you. I know you. you like multiple clues. I do multiple answers. Okay.、Possible. Was the James Bond theme originally about a murder, a World War II mission, a nuclear bomb, or a sneeze? 
Well, just to be contrary, I'll say a sneeze. <laughs> and you're, you're right. <laughs> yes, the song was originally about a sneeze. The man who actually wrote this, Monty Norman, that was his name. I always thought John Barry wrote it. I've seen John Barry credited with this over the years, and it was wrong. So Monty Norman was struggling to come up with the James Bond theme until, as he put it, he went to his bottom drawer and found a song he always liked from an unproduced musical. The title was Bad Sign, Good Sign, and it began with these words. I was born with this unlucky sneeze. Jeez. <laughs> it sure it departed from that kind of theme, didn't it? He stripped away the lyrics. He made the notes staccato, and he said, the moment I did dum-da-dee-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, I thought, my that's God, it. that's it. This is what it sounds like for people who might not know what we're talking about. And, of course, a portion of that theme has been used in almost every James Bond movie ever since. Oh, absolutely it has. So just what inspired him to take on this job? Take on the job of what? Of, of writing of the theme the for theme? James Bond. Um, what inspired? Money? Or a love of Bond or or a family vacation. What do you think, Mark? <laughs> Sounds like a family vacation to me. It's funny how people are motivated to do things. Basically, he had written some musical theater and a, a producer said, hey, we've got rights to do these James Bond films. We're doing a show called Dr. No. Would you like to write the theme? And he said ah, he wasn't really interested in it. And so the guy said, well, we'll throw in a vacation to Jamaica with you and your family. That's where we're shooting it. So that's And he said, that cool. did it for me. That yeah. was the clincher. <laughs> you and I have done things uh, to pay for our vacations. Actually, <laughs> you had a uh, job writing videos for General Electric. And I believe they called you one Thursday or Friday and said, we need you to write a script. And you said, I can't. We're going on vacation. And He said, I'll double your hourly salary. And I said, OK, you're on. And I turned it around in a day. And it paid for most of our vacation. It did. It was but great. I recall you. Didn't you get a trip out to Disneyland? Oh, yeah. With, uh, with your voice work? And you took that. Yeah. It was an MC at the Disneyland Hotel there. That was great. OK. So so this is kind of what this guy did. So he said, okay, yeah, I'll take a vacation. So he did it. So why was John Barry credited with writing the theme? Well, John Barry, he went on to score 10 more James Bond okay. movies. Oh, you mean like Gold Goldfinger? Finger. Yeah, he did all those. So everybody assumed, oh, he must have done the original oh, okay. theme. But he didn't. He never corrected reporters. Huh. And finally, this man, Monty Norman, got really <laughs> ticked off. I would say so. And he sued when the Times of London published an article and they credited John Barry with it, he sued them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and he told a jury, this rubbished my whole career. They agreed and they awarded him 30,000 pounds, which is about $93,000 today. Huh. So Monty Norman, he just died. Mr. Norman died recently in Slough, England at the age of 94. John Barry died in 2011. Okay. So the James Bond theme, the song huh? about a sneeze. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Bob. It's called The Unicorn of the Sea. What is it? The Unicorn of the Sea. It is the narwhal. The narwhal. Yep. This Arctic marvel of the sea. It's a sea creature. It has one tooth, not a tusk, that shoots out of its mouth. Really? One tooth? Yeah. This is on display in a traveling Smithsonian exhibit. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And uh, 
It's got this huge tooth that comes out. It's only got one tooth. It's a left canine, and it comes out through its gums and straight out of its snout. Sounds painful to me. (laughs) And it is very weird. But it can bend, check this, 12 inches in either direction. A tooth that can bend? Yeah, 12 inches in any direction. And this is called a narwhal? Yeah. So is this a, a fish or a whale or what? It's a mammal. It's a whale. It's a kind of whale. And it's and uh, it's got this one tooth. And is that why they call it the unicorn? Yeah, the unicorn of the sea. Okay. But, okay. So the question is... How long uh, does the tooth get? How long, long in the tooth is yeah, this? Yeah, I was going to say. Okay. 12 feet. Well, not too far off. 10 feet. Wow. It can get up to 10 feet. And that's pretty long sticking out of your nose. And it, and it can move back and forth? If you bend it. That's the thing we saw in that show... Elf. In Elf, they it show that. It comes up. Goodbye, out, buddy. Out of the water. <laughs> yeah. and it's got a big, long yeah. thing that sticks yeah. out. That's it? Yeah. That is, that's the thing they pictured in Goodbye, that show. Goodbye, buddy. I'll be darned. That was a narwhal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was an interesting dive into the ocean. Yes, that it was. That was good. All right. All right, Marcia. What language does the international distress call Mayday come from? Well, that's very interesting. Is it? And I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> You come from this place. Part of you comes from this country. Ah, uh, Germany or France? France, Marcia. France. Mayday is used three times in a row to call for distress. Yes. Mayday, 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 mayday. And originally came from the French phrase mater, M apostrophe A-I-D-E-R, which means help me. So how did it turn into a international distress symbol? Oh, golly, I don't know. It came from England, believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> the senior... Radio operator at Croydon Airport in London in 1923 was asked to think of a word to signify distress that could be easily understood on the radio, Uh which was primitive at the time. And because most of the air travel between Croydon in London and Le Bourget Field in Paris was from France, he proposed using Mayday from the French phrase Mater. And uh, it's been that that way for 100 years. I'll be darned. And it was chosen because it was easy to understand on scratchy radios. Yeah, yeah. Mayday, Mayday. Mayday, yeah. That that makes perfect sense, actually. Okay, Bob. But you can Uh, thank this gentleman, Frederick Stanley Mockford. I thought as much. (laughs) For coming up with that. (laughs) Okay. All right. You know, Star Wars did a lot for a lot of people's careers. I'll bet you know who was the composer of the Star Wars John Williams. That's right. Everybody knows that for some reason. Well, he's 90 years old now, and he's about to retire from movie music. Want to guess what the last movie he's working on? Is it a James Bond film, or is it a Star Wars film, or is it? Nope, nope. None of those, huh? Yeah, he said he's not retiring from music. I saw that. But he's going to retire from film music. Yes. I don't know. Which one is it? It is Indiana Jones 5. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> he and he and Spielberg are, have had a long association. And Harrison Ford is in this. And Harrison is retiring, too, after this one. So he's been composing John Williams since 1958. His first film was called... Daddy-o. <laughs> Daddy-o. <laughs> Sounds like a, a yeah. hip teenage movie or something. Yeah. He's uh, responsible for so many great moments in cinema, everything from Jaws to Star Wars. He's scored over 100 films in all.
You know, I think I read, I believe it was the director of uh, the new movie. This is the first non-Spielberg-directed movie of Indiana Jones. Oh, he's not no, uh, directing that. And the new director said he grew up with Indiana Jones, and he said it was such a thrill to turn around on set the first day and see Harrison Ford there dressed head to toe oh, like Indiana like, Jones. Oh, I'll bet. I'll <laughs> bet. And, you know, uh, just thinking of the Jaws music, it was so identifiable. And remember that skit that was on Saturday Night Live? Yes. <laughs> With the with the uh, candy gram, yeah, <laughs> and it's the candy gram. It's the big uh, shark outside their door knocking they're, on their door. They're in a shark costume, yeah. and then the door opens, and then the shark swallows yeah, them up. Yeah, but the, you hear the music, and uh, and it's uh, very funny. So that's a recent thing in the news. Here's another recent thing in the news. Did you know Jim Thorpe? has been restored as the sole winner of the two Olympic gold medals that were taken away from oh. him in 1912, 110 years later. And what happened was kind of a trumped-up thing. He had played semi-pro baseball for a oh, few years. that was it. I remember that. He made $25 a week. That was the uh. big fortune he made playing baseball. And they found out about them after the awards, and the American Olympic Committee stripped him of the awards. The two people who got the medals that he lost, those two athletes, they expressed great distress accepting his okay. medals, but they took them. So when the Olympic Committee decided to restore them, they actually went back to those families, and those families say the credit should be where it was due. Oh, good for them. So they gave it back to Jim Thorpe. Good now, for them. And they asked the Swedish Olympic Committee, which was the head of the Games, if they had any comment, and they said, we want to quote the Swedish King Gustav V, who said to Jim Thorpe at the medal ceremony, sir, you are the greatest athlete oh. in the world. <laughs> lovely. That's lovely. Now, we always grew up with this name. Did you know that he went on to play professional sports in the United States? Well, I saw the movie. That's uh, and It was an old movie then on TV, and I went, oh, that, that's how I knew about him. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known about him. Well, he went into Major League Baseball. He played outfield for the New York Giants, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Boston Braves from 1912 to 1919. And then he switched to pro football in 1920. He played until he was 41 years old in pro football. Good Lord. And he, what was his he position? Played with, he was a tailback and an end and a fullback. I'll be darned. Okay. But he was with six teams in professional football, including the New York Giants. I, I'm just amazed at that. Hmm. But he's been restored as sole winner to the two Olympic gold medals that were taken away from him from 1912. All right. On to kangaroos. Of course. <laughs> kangaroos. <laughs> How fast can they jump? How fast can a kangaroo jump? Yeah. You mean how how high or how no, fast? No, fast, miles per hour. Oh, really? Yes. So is. we know how many miles per hour they yes, can jump. Yes, we do. Hmm, and 30 you, miles per hour? That's crazy, Bob. It's 40 miles oh per hour. Oh, my God, that's fast. <laughs> it is very fast. From that's, a sitting position to a leap in 40 miles per hour? Yeah, that's, uh, that's why I'm here to enlighten you. Okay. okay, where is the largest library in the world? The largest library in the world? Yeah. I think it's the, um, I think it's in Washington, D.C., and it's the, what is it called, the Congressional Library or? Library of Congress? Library of Congress, yes. jeez. Wow, Am I right? Yes. Oh, good. Yes, 40 million books on the shelves, 40 million. Wow. It burned down during the War of 1812, as you know, and who sold his collection to them? Thomas Jefferson. That's correct. Who was in great need of money at the time. Yeah, he sold it for $24,000. He had 6,487 books to call his own, and That's he sold amazing. them That's to the library lot. to start over again. Wow. Okay, I think it's time to take a break. It is. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith.
and we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back with the off-ramp today, and Marcia, that leads us to this question. What civilization is credited with spreading beer around the world? Germans. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Who? The Romans. Oh, okay. <laughs> they picked up knowledge of brewing from the Greeks, and the Roman legions liked beer so much it became their main drink. And the beer spread throughout all the regions they conquered. Beer in one form or another from grains and plants goes back as far as all historical records, as we, we know. Isn't that interesting? See, yeah. I, didn't, I keep forgetting that. It went way back, way back in As time. early as 3,400 B.C., there was a tax on barley wine, one of the most popular beers in ancient Egypt in the city of Memphis. Before Christ B.C., 3,000? 3,400. Jeez. Yeah. Hard to believe. Beer, a so. good thing. A good thing that went way back. <laughs> All right, Bob, you've probably heard of this, the International Dark Sky Association. Yes, yes, I heard about this. You did? Yes. It has certified 20 dark sky reserves in the world for the best viewing of... Uh, Stars. Yeah, yeah. in the environment. But there's only one in the United States. Where <sighs> is it? Where is it? Now... This is the organization that says these are the areas with the least light pollution. Yeah. Okay. We know it's not in or near Las Vegas because that's supposed <laughs> to be one of the heaviest light pollution places on Earth. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say mm -hmm. somewhere in maybe Northern California or Oregon possibly. Well, you're in the general right okay. area. It's where our daughter lives. Where? Utah. Is that where she lives? No, oh. Idaho. Jeez, I said the wrong. <laughs> That's why I said, is that right? where she lives? Jeez. The Sawtooth Mountains, uh, there's 1,416 square miles that they have certified as a great place to look at starry nights. That means there's nothing around there that produces nothing an electric light bulb. <laughs> nothing. It's dark at night there. No hot tubs, nothing. No. Lit up hot tubs. Pretty interesting, though. Uh-huh. That's good. Only one in the whole country. Yeah. Okay, Marcia, we spoke of France earlier. I'm going to ask you a question about France, okay? All right. The country that French fries were named for once outlawed potatoes. Why? Oh, for God's sakes, that's, that's unheard the of. The country with French fries once outlawed potatoes. Why? Um... Because they were fried and they didn't believe in fried foods. Well, first they were considered hog feed, unfit oh. for human consumption. But the government banned them in 1748, believing they caused leprosy. <laughs> <laughs> What's that lesion on your face, Bob? <laughs> it's from a potato. <laughs> okay, we've talked before about Methuselah. Did we? Yes, it's the oldest living thing in the world, and mm -hmm. it's a 4,500-year-old pine growing in eastern California at an undisclosed location. Oh, so, that's right, yes. Right? So people don't go there and hurt it. Anyway, did you know that it grows five to six inches every 40 what? Weeks, months, years, millenniums. Four to six inches every 40 what? Well, it can't be weeks, can it? That'd be pretty, that's like bamboo. Uh, so every 40 years. That is correct. Really? Okay. Yep. And uh, every 40 years, it grows only five to six inches. I would have said months, but uh, the... Uh, well, you would have been wrong, I Marsh. would have been very wrong. And you knew the answer. I don't understand why you would have said that. <laughs> and uh, it was a seedling, Bob, when Stonehenge was finished, so... That's a, when you think of it in those terms, yeah. it's amazing, isn't it's it? it's just crazy. 
Okay, Marcia, where was the very first school in the United States? And it's still a school. Can you believe that? I cannot believe that. It's, I'll it's say. It's not a college. We're talking about a school. Give me a location in the United States, northwest. Okay, is it Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh-huh. St. Augustine, Florida, uh-huh. Jamestown, Virginia, or Boston, Massachusetts? Okay, well, St. Augustine is the oldest city, so part of you says that's where the school should be. St. Augustine for 10. <laughs> nope, you're wrong. You lost 10 points. <laughs> okay. So your next choice is? Oh, would be... Um, Santa Fe, Boston, Jamestown. I'll say Jamestown. You lost another 10 points. Okay. <laughs> I'll say Santa Fe. Your third amount of 10 <laughs> points you lost. I think I have one left. Okay, and where would that be, Mar? I forgot already. Boston. Boston, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, not many institutions have been functioning in the U.S. for 400 years, but the very first public school is. It's the Boston Latin School. That was founded April 23rd, 1635. That's in, the first school. Okay. In Boston, and still in business. It was originally a public school, a secondary school for boys only. It taught Greek, Latin, and the humanities and was considered college prep. And John Hancock and Samuel Adams were two of its most famous oh, really? graduates. Okay. Who was its most famous dropout? Okay, um... Steve Jobs. No. <laughs> I don't know. Ben Franklin. Oh, really? Uh. <laughs> and it wasn't co-ed until 1972. Can you believe that? No, I cannot. That is so long. 72. All it, right. It uh, still teaches boys and girls in grades 7 through 12 in the Fenway neighborhood of Beantown, and admission is determined by an entrance exam. And given its impressive graduates, it's probably pretty competitive. Yeah. Interesting. Boston Latin School. Okay, in the mid 1800s, mm-hmm. what famous writer was known not only for going around the world in 72 days, but went undercover in an insane asylum? So I the, thought it was 80 days. Jules Verne. I don't know if he did that, did he? I know he wrote a book, but nope, that's not correct. Nellie Bly. That's it. She was a famous female correspondent and yes. a daredevil. Yes. Yes. Her real name was Elizabeth Cochran, aka no kidding. Yeah, aka Nellie Bly. She was born in 1864 and she was born in kind of an upper class life, but she was a huge advocate and a voice for the poor and downtrodden. Her initial investigation into the insane asylum involved a 10-day stay at the infamous Blackwell's Insane Asylum in New York City. Ooh, geez. And she went there and saw women experiencing mental health uh, crises, and uh, a lot of them were there just because they couldn't speak English. Well, and they were there for a lot of reasons. Husbands could get their wives committed. Yeah. After her release, she penned a story that exposed the institution's horror, and it led to public calls for uh, improved condition, including a grand jury investigation. But uh, she wrote a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse and exposed all the cruelty and awfulness that went on there. You know, I don't remember her being referenced when we were in journalism school. You know? I do. Do you? Oh, that mm-hmm. was. did you learn about it in journalism yeah. school? Okay, because I remember some of the other people like John Peter Zenger and, you know, some of the other famous journalists, but... Uh, I didn't remember Nellie Bly. I always thought she should have been a great example. She was. Okay. That leads us to this question. Where is the only floating post office in the United States? <laughs> is it? Is it? Uh, well, I've got some choices here oh, for you. Oh, okay. Washington State, Michigan, Florida, or Delaware? Jeez. Florida. No. 
Delaware. No. Michigan. Yes. <laughs> yes, as TravelTrivia.com states, if you're going to pick one state in the Union to have a floating post office, it's a good bet it would be a Great Lakes state. It's on the Detroit River, separating the U.S. and Canada. It's a 45-foot tugboat named the J.W. Westcott II. It's the nation's only floating post office. Delivers mail to other vessels on the river. It's the only boat in the country to have its own zip code. It's 48222. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Officially established in 1949, but the Westcott Company has been delivering mail and supplies on the Detroit River since 1874. And apparently the government still wants to keep it a post office because the J.W. Westcott suffered damage in 2001, but it was salvaged and rebuilt, and it still serves the state of Michigan today. I'll be darned. So that's where the only floating post office in the United States is. It's on the Detroit River in Michigan. Okay. Well, here's a bygone sport, Bob. Lava sledding. (laughs) Never heard of this one. Well, you didn't. Well, get with it. That was going on in the 1700s. Where? Lava sledding? Yeah. Was it here in the United States? Uh Uh-huh. Was it in Hawaii? Yes. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, in the 1700s. And uh, yeah, the upper class, the ruling class in Hawaii did lava sledding. It involved competitors launching themselves down groomed slides along the side of a volcano. Wow. That, no, that doesn't sound like, <laughs> that's for the faint of heart, I don't I, think. I think. Uh, their their boards were 12 feet long and just six inches wide. You couldn't wow. be a fat porker on that one. You know, and lava is so sharp and harsh on the feet or, or the hands. If you don't want to fall off that six foot, what'd you say, six the, inch wide? Six inch wide. Six Racers, inch wide yeah. board. Oh my God. Racers would either stand atop the board lie face first or kneel down and they reach speeds up to 50 miles per hour oh you could rip yourself open Uh in that holy cow the last documented version of this event was in 1825 jeez uh historians believe that the sport was an honor to pele the hawaiian goddess of fire and volcanoes lord and pain i would think i I would think (laughs) so hey i've got an interesting food question okay Name this product. Its inventor developed it, removing a key ingredient found in this food's natural state. He felt that had been what killed his father, and he wanted to remove the danger for others. What product is it? And I'll give you a clue. It's a drink. Again, its inventor developed this product, removing a key ingredient found in its natural state. He felt that's what killed his father, and he wanted to remove the danger for others. What product are we talking about? Was it a drink? It's a drink. Um, I don't know. Coffee. Decaffeinated coffee. It's Sanka. Oh. That's how that product was first developed in the early 1900s by German doctor Ludwig Roselius. He was the son of a coffee merchant, and he was convinced caffeine was the cause of his father's early death. So he developed a method that used steam and a chemical solvent, benzene, to remove caffeine from green coffee beans prior to roasting. And the term Seca means without caffeine. It's French. He thought his dad died from From caffeine. From the caffeine. I'll be dang. So he wanted to create a drink that, uh, you know, people would still use, but wouldn't have that danger. All right. I think that's it. We want to remind you, we do take questions. If you'd like to give us a question and answer, we would love to use it on the show. Go to our website, theofframp.show, and go down to contact us and leave your information. Here's my quote of the day. Okay. And it's on summer Mm -hmm. by Sam Keen. 
It says, deep summer is when laziness finds respectability. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where you and I are these days. I feel very respectable today, (laughs) these days. Yes, laziness meets respectability. That's deep summer. That's it. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more tantalizing trivia and fascinating facts. And bountiful bandanage. You bet. Right here on The (laughs) The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.